Hello, and welcome to another program in the Traverse City National Writer Series. Today, the creator of TV's Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan. On stage at the Traverse City Opera House with Vince Gilligan is National Writer Series founder, Doug Stanton. Thank you. But do you like our new chairs? And the chairs are great, yeah. very comfortable. Good lumbar support. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I like All right. it. Um, well, thank you again. I also noticed the, uh, the poster you have outside. I realize I'm wearing the exact same damn outfit tonight <laughs> that's in the poster. They're going to think I only have the one sport jacket, which is, which is actually true. But uh, <laughs> It's good to be here, though. Thank you very much. Um, well, listen, I, I, I meant every word I said at the podium. Um, I, I'm, just, I'm actually, though, confused, Vince, how you managed to be so affable, and easygoing, and have risen to the top of television in Los Angeles. And I want to talk about that tonight a little bit to see how it is you do what you do. Um, but first, I want to just go through the journey that you started back in 1982. Yes. You were at Interlochen. Yes. And then you left and went back to Virginia. You ended up going to Tisch, NYU. Uh-huh. And, and then you ended up in Los Angeles. How, how did you get yeah, what, what was that journey? Uh, well, I, uh, and I got to say, uh, as, as Doug said, uh, this was the first, uh, yesterday when, when we flew in, uh, it was the first time I've been in Michigan since it's been 30 years, and I, and I have not stayed away on purpose. I've just never, through, you know, the vagaries of life, you know, as we live it, I've never found myself back here. But uh, today, driving through Interlochen, being shown Interlochen by you and, Mr., and by Mr. Driscoll, uh, just absolute I just, it was very emotional. I, I, it was, uh, I only had the one year there. Uh, my, my family was not able to, uh, to afford uh, subsequent years, uh, although the one year I had was, was absolutely wonderful. And I uh, did that, uh, went, uh, uh, was lucky to, to get that, and then uh, spent uh, three years in, in public school in Virginia. Uh, I always knew I wanted to write. I always knew I wanted to be a... But you were a visual arts major at Interlochen. And, and, I was. I was not a particularly good one. Everyone was better than me. <laughs> There and I think that was actually helpful. It was humbling to get sort of, you know, gently kicked in the butt that way. You made your mom some earrings out of tracheotomy tubes that were out of made out of silver. To t- uh, I had I had wonderful teachers there, Mr. Driscoll, uh, chief amongst them, and also Mr. Church, who was the metalsmithing teacher there, who was a wonderful man, and he was a very uh, enthusiastic and dedicated teacher. And he, I think, probably with his own money, uh, went off and bought. Uh, Korean War era tracheotomy tubes. Uh, literally, they were made, I guess, back in the day out of, out of silver because it's, it's uh, I guess it's more easily sterilized. And, and we melted them down. Uh, I saw the old... Uh, 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 Autoclave. Uh, it was, actually, it was a casting machine. It was a spring-powered uh, centrifugal casting machine that we used to make these earrings. I made them for my mom. She still uh, humors me and wears them from time to time. But uh, made out of uh, tracheotomy tubes. And uh, so, but I had a, I had a, just a wonderful time, uh, my, my year, my ninth grade year in Interlochen. And then uh, I just always wanted to, to make movies and, and uh, movies. Even, to, even back then? Even back then. You were, they, you were a Star Wars fan. And, uh, I loved Star Wars. I loved movies of all kinds. Maybe my, RFD. Yeah. Loved, oh, yeah. I loved uh, TV and movies both. I, I sort of saw them as, as somewhat interchangeable. They, a movie is two hours long. A TV show is a half hour, an hour. But it all felt like the same essential uh, visual storytelling to, to me, and, and I always, I always uh, wanted to do that uh, with my life. 
And I, I got very fortunate. I, my mom, uh, my parents, especially my mom in particular, was very supportive of me having a career uh, in the arts as a, as a, you know, and, and eventually as a writer. Uh, and I went to uh, New York University uh, Film School and studied film production, uh, undergraduate, undergraduate uh, film production. And I got very lucky. The, 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 the thing that got me my start, as it were, aside from all the wonderful, uh, you know, foundations that I received at places like Interlock. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thing easiest to point to that got me my start was I won a screenwriting contest uh, put on by my home state of Virginia uh, in 1989. Uh, and it was a movie, a feature-length script I wrote that you mentioned called Home Fries. Uh, uh, my, my home state of Virginia, the, the, this, this movie script I'd written as a, as a senior level class project in at, high at school NYU. or at, at, at in NYU. college okay my, my final year at NYU I wrote I wrote this the script home fries it was my first feature and the year that I, I entered this contest um, in 1989 I think the state of Virginia only had 30 other entrants so the, the odds were very good uh, so I would recommend I and, and all joking aside I would recommend any writers out there to to actually uh, to enter every screenwriting competition, or, or if you're a screenwriter or if you're a fiction writer. It, contests are wonderful because it's very hard to get people to read your writing. Uh, very often, you know, people say, hey, I wrote this thing, would you read it? And especially if it's a feature-length screenplay. It's, you know, 100, 110, 120 pages, and people will say, yeah, yeah, and then they'll, they'll just, you know, sit on a shelf somewhere. But these contests, uh, you have, uh, you essentially have a captive readership uh, in the, uh, you know, as 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 represented by the the, the judges of, of these contests. And this particular contest that I won uh, was judged by, uh, among others, by a man named Mark Johnson, who uh, had just won the Oscar. Uh, he and his partner Barry Levinson had won the Oscar for Best Picture for the movie Rain Man in the late '80s, uh, late, late late yeah late '80s. And he was judging this contest as a favor to the University of Virginia uh, because he was an alum, alumnus. I forget the Latin, alumnus. He, 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 gra he graduated there. from He graduated there. from yeah. there. <laughs> and uh, uh, he uh, became my mentor in the, in the business. He, he read this script. He liked it. I, I won this. I was one of three winners of this contest. Uh, but he contacted me after the contest was over and said, I like that script. Do you have any others? And he is now an executive producer uh, on Breaking Bad. I've known him now for 20, 20, 21, 22 years now. And he's been a wonderful uh, mentor to me. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how, essentially in a nutshell, that's the easiest thing to point to as to how I got my start. Because within about a year of winning that contest, he flew me out to California and started introducing mm -hmm. me to people. And, uh, had uh, TriStar Pictures, now owned by uh, Sony Corporation, uh, buy my first script and then, and then buy the next. So when somebody scripts. says to you, can you show me something, and they can make something happen, yeah. take them up on it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, if it's a guy in an alley somewhere, maybe not. But I mean, if it's, <laughs> yeah. you know. All right. But, but so. and, and having said that, make sure you have something to show them. You know, work your butts off. Uh, before anyone's asking to read it, so you can stockpile exactly. the stuff yep. to show them when they do start asking. Yeah. Um, Breaking Bad for those you have huge fans in the audience, but just let's just talk about who's in that show. Brian Cranston and I mean, who would have thought a, a show with an RV and it takes place in Albuquerque yes. and about methamphetamine would um, be so popular with 16-year-old kids? Uh, <laughs> 
getting straight A's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I came home, I, I think I told you, and found my, our 16-year-old daughter and, and our son, 19. Um, they'd watched all the episodes on, uh, I said, you watch this? I mean, uh, what? And uh, they're, they're just fascinating. What kind of but... parent are you letting them watch? <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I met your kids there. You were an excellent, excellent parent because they're both wonderful. Yeah, okay. Kids. Thank you, Vince. Yeah, yeah. Way, <laughs> way to go. Uh, can you leave? No, okay. Um, you know, I think they might like Aaron Paul. Uh, who likes the, the Jesse Pinkman character? Is that. Uh... All right, let's do this. Sure. Okay, uh, applause. Brian, uh, well, I don't want to use, because it's not about the actor, but Walter White. Who's a fan of Walter White? <laughs> J- Jesse? Huh. Uh, Hank Schrader? Yeah. Nice. All right. Vince Gilligan? Yeah. <laughs> right. um, you, know, was that, you know, it takes place in suburbia. Doesn't it? I mean, yeah, uh, yes, it does. Uh, Albuqu- suburban Albuquerque, uh, which is a, a, a and you version. film it there. We film it in Albuquerque. It was originally designed. Uh, uh, designed uh, when I wrote the original script, I, I, I set it in Riverside, California. Uh, they, it's called the Inland Empire. I love that name. I don't know who came up with that, but it's it's the the cities of Ontario and Riverside and whatnot, uh, just uh, east of Los Angeles. And I. Uh, the reason I said it there was uh, I was friends with a, a DEA agent uh, who was the brother-in-law of uh, a producer I worked with on the X-Files, uh, a great guy named uh, Grant LaFont, who's a DEA agent. Uh, and um, he had uh, shown me around the, the Riverside District office, and I was thinking, this is... And I said, you know, do you have a meth problem here? And he said, oh, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a meth problem pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, which is a, uh, an unfortunate thing. But I thought, well, I'll set the, set the show there. But um, we wound up shooting in Albuquerque because when we came closer to reality on, on this thing, when, when, the, uh, uh, when it came close to time to shoot the pilot, the Sony guys, uh, I work, I'm employed by Sony Television. They're the studio that, that actually owns and pays for the show. Uh, the, the money guys came to me and said, what do you think about setting it, shooting it in New Mexico instead? And I said, why? And they said, because New Mexico, the state of New Mexico has a wonderful 25% rebate that they offer on uh, all production that takes place in the, in the confines of the state. And I know Michigan had an excellent one up until a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, but that really, that's like, you know, uh, flies, to, flies to honey, you know, us being the flies in production. We, we love the sound of 25% rebate and, and it works better in Albuquerque, I think. I, I mean, think it works wonderfully. Uh, we're so lucky to be shooting there because the Inland Empire, and, and in fact, uh, all of Southern California, uh, is a good place to shoot. Great crews, uh, great talent, very deep talent pool. But you cannot point a camera anywhere in Southern California and shoot something that has not, at least I feel, has not been shot 100 times before because, you know, the California uh, industry dates back to the, the, the teens of, of the last century. Uh, Albuquerque, however, feels like virgin territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly there has been production, uh, film and television production in Albuquerque, but not nearly to the extent of Southern California. And whenever we point a camera somewhere in Albuquerque or in its environs, its surroundings, it, it, it does feel like these are places that have never been, sh- whether true or not, it feels like uh, never been shot before. And it has this Western vibe that I was not originally intending for the show, but, but it, it, it allows us to make the show feel like a contemporary Western, which I, which I very much love to do. Can you spell it? 
Albuquerque? Yeah. A L B U A L B U Q U E R Q U E. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tricky one. Yeah, you got to look at it. You yeah. write it, and then you got to look at it a couple times. <laughs> or you can call it the Duke City, which is also what it's known as, which is easier to spell. Duke, really? Yeah, because it was the Duke of Albuquerque. Uh, the Duke of Albuquerque. It was. It was about, dating back to the span when it was a Spanish uh, land grant. Oh, is it uh, part of that Vincent Price movie? Uh, the, King of Arizona, no, the Duke of Arizona, I, I, uh, come to me, but uh, yeah, yeah. the Duke, of, see, all right. Yeah. Well, you know, you couldn't have the, the cartel uh, would be harder to work into Inland City, et cetera. So it's, it, I, I just, you know, Albuquerque is almost a character in this show. Good. And, um, you know, I know you've, you're a huge student of film and of television. You've said something interesting about Breaking Bad, which is you thought it would be an experiment. And tell us what you thought that experiment would be. I love television. I've watched television all my life, as, as probably we all have to some extent or another. Um, one thing I realized about television, being a being a, an avid consumer of it, is that television uh, relies on a, on a kind of a self-imposed stasis. Uh, in other words, if you are a fan of Gunsmoke, that show went 20 years, and and in the first episode, Marshall Dillon, you know guns down the guy in Main Street and feels kind of bad about it. In the last episode, 20 years later, it's essentially uh, similar things are going on. And he uh, feels just the same way about shooting the guy. Well, and, 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 and please don't mistake this as a, that's not a, it's a good thing, Stasis. It's, it, it, we, we invite television, our favorite TV shows, I think they're our favorite shows uh, on a very fundamental level, not even so much for the writing, you know, the, the, the art or artifice or whatever that goes into the creation of it, but fundamentally, a great TV show that we love has to center on characters that we want to invite into our homes at the same time every week, you know, back mm -hmm. in the day before TiVo. You know, you'd have an appointment to watch Archie Bunker or, or, or Andy uh, Taylor on, on, you know, on the Andy Griffith show or, or, or whoever. Um, and because of that, and because television is very uh, indefinite and open-ended uh, in its... And, and it's the length of a show, uh, how long a show exists, because you want, because you want your show as a, a producer, uh, you want it to go on as long as you possibly can, an indeterminate number of seasons. You have to create a sort of a stasis. Uh, I always say the TV show MASH, you know, it's an 18-month uh, police action in Korea, and, and they, they milked it out to 11 or 12 years. And I loved every minute of it. I watched every episode of MASH. But... Uh, and it's an odd thing, because you can see the, the actors aging 11 or 12 years, but, but it's a very finite amount of time that they're actually there. War as hell. You know or, I mean? Well, yeah, it's, it was tough on them. Yeah, yeah. It made them yeah. all go gray. Yeah. So, but uh, what's my point? My point being that that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, because you want to be able to visit with your favorite TV characters week in and week out. But I thought to myself, is there an opportunity here to, to try something different, to try a bit of an experiment? And this is indeed what I pitched to the Sony executives and the AMC executives, ultimately, I said, I want to, I want to create a show that is about process. In other words, the process of a man will, willing himself, deciding to become a criminal, the process that he would take to to become that person. And I wanted it to be about transformation. I wanted to take the protagonist of our show and have him redefine himself, recreate himself as the antagonist. As I pitched to them, I said, I want to take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface uh, throughout the course of, the, of, of however many episodes we would have. And that's the tricky part. When we first got going, I thought, 
and, and this was a mistake, by the way. To, I said to them, I think maybe with two and a half, three, uh, two years, three years, maybe four at the outside, and then we should be done. And this is a bad thing to pitch to the, to the people uh, putting the money up, fronting the money, because the longer the show goes, the more they have a chance to, to reach profit mm -hmm. status. Uh, so that was a dumb thing for me to say. But, <laughs> but I always pictured this show being a, a finite, uh, I never knew exactly how long it should be, but somewhat shorter. I said, this is never going to go as long as ER or The Simpsons or, or, or Law and Order or whatnot. It's, it's, the man starts off good, he becomes increasingly bad, and then at a certain point we, we wrap it up. So it is, in a sense, an experiment in, in that regard. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so far so good. The question I get is, why? What's the message of this show? And I don't, I don't believe in intrinsic messages that you could say in a sentence, but it's so popular and so interesting. What is it we like about watching this guy uh, become this uh, guy with the pork pie hat and, yeah. the, and the shaved head and... I mean, I don't know. I wish I knew. I, I or maybe I don't. I, 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 not to sound simplistic, but we, at the end of the day, all we really set forth to do is to tell an entertaining story. And and my, I have six excellent writers, and I've had very little turnover in my writers' room. Uh, very little attrition, unlike what I was used to working in the X Files, where we we just churn through people like you know. Was, but. Uh, the six of us, the seven of us counting me, we sit in this room day in and day out and we try to please ourselves. We try to tell a story that we ourselves would, would be engaged by as, as consumers, as viewers. And um, we kind of leave it to the audience to, to put meaning to it, put words to the meaning, to, to, to explain to us what it's about. But to me, it's a, essentially just a character study of, a, of, who, of what is hopefully a very interesting and fascinating person. He fascinates us. He gets less likable. By the way, you're not meant, well, you're, enjoy, consume Breaking Bad any way you choose. From my personal point of view, this is not an admirable guy, uh, which, which can confuse people. Usually a uh, main character of a TV show, although I would have to say Sopranos paved the way for, for less than likable or admirable <laughs> characters, and God bless them, because we wouldn't be on the air if, if it hadn't been mm -hmm. for the Sopranos. But, you know, we live in a time now, and I'm grateful for it, where you can have a protagonist of a TV show who is less than likable, less than admirable, and yet if he or she is, is at least interesting, that hopefully is enough to, to, to keep things going. And, and at the end of the day, Walter White started off uh, doing bad things for good reasons that we could all understand and perhaps sympathize with. Now he's doing bad things for, for bad reasons. Uh, Self-aggrandizement, I guess, is the best way to put it. But hopefully he's still interesting nonetheless. You're listening to the Traverse City National Writer Series with Vince Gilligan, creator of Breaking Bad. Talking with Vince Gilligan is Doug Stanton. This is IPR News Radio. We're going to watch uh, in just a few moments um, some great clips from the past four seasons and then talk about them. But... Apropos of that, you've talked about the fifth season, which is the final season. Does everyone, I don't know if people are aware of that. So you're, you're presently probably in, in mode to figure out where Walter's going to end up. We are, uh, my writers and I are breaking the last, the final 16 episodes. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we, uh, it, it feels like uh, we're, we're close to the end. And yet, thinking about it mathematically, we're, 16 more episodes represents more than a third of all the episodes that have come 
prior to this. So we still have a good number to get through. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're working on the break in the last 16. Uh, when I left them on Thursday, uh, they were we were working on episode number three. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying. We just want to wrap it up in as satisfying a manner as possible. And what, hap- what happened in episode number three? <laughs> I, I got to wait. When I, when I get back, they'll tell me. I don't know no yet. Tell us what that writer's room is like. It's, I think it's so fascinating to, to, to people. Uh, when you say you, you're breaking, which means you're probably breaking down plot points and beats and, and so on. But you, you're sitting around a table with a whiteboard, and you're standing up there with a... a oh, very important. We don't use a whiteboard. This is a big bone of contention. For, uh, okay. it, you know what? It's a, it, it would make sense. You would assume it's a whiteboard because it's very much in vogue now to use whiteboards, dry erase boards. Yeah. But I am dead set against them because when you're playing Nerf football in the writer's room and you go long and someone bangs up against the dry erase board, their shoulder erases, you know, hundreds of man hours of work. You know, that's what happened with the end of Sopranos when they closed out the final season. David Chase probably wiped his arm against what would have been the last scene. And then, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, the one word. So what do you use? Paper? Yeah. Yeah. we use uh, index cards, three by five inch index cards, and we have these uh, uh, quartet uh, uh, cork boards, three foot by five foot or thereabouts. And we uh, and we, we use sharpies, and there's a it's it's almost like a Japanese tea ceremony. There's a there's a really, and it's it's a process I learned from seven years on the X Files. Chris Carter, my boss in the X Files, who was a wonderful no, he was a showrunner in X Files. He, he created was you. and yeah. ran. He yeah. was he was me on on the X Files, and and I learned so much from him. I wouldn't be able to do the job I do now if not for the time I had on that show. But I, we break the episodes the same way we did it in the X-Files. We, we sit around in a big room and we uh, talk endlessly. And, and, and the main, uh, the gist of what we say over and over again, like a mantra almost is, you know, where's Walt's head at? Uh, what does he want right now? What is he afraid of right now? What are the obstacles to his goals? What does Jesse want? What does Skyler want? You just endlessly re-asking and re-asking ourselves these fundamental questions over and over again, and thus building uh, brick by brick uh, the episodes. And and it's I often say it's uh, sitting in this room. It's sort of like a uh, uh, being on a sequestered jury that never ends, like being on the OJ jury, except like for like years on end, because it's the same bunch of people around this boardroom table. And it's covered with Rubik's cubes and puzzles and crap, you know. And, Snacks. Play, a lot of snacks. Yeah. Actually, my writers are getting. We're all getting pretty good about it because we're all, you know, we're we're trying to be healthy. But just lots of <laughs> stuff. Play doh, yeah. play doh. They're always messing with, you know. So uh, they'll be playing with play doh and talking like, well, I yeah. think Walter should really get in the Aztec and drive into the yeah. re- reservoir. And okay. Yeah. It, exactly. And someone would say, no, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. No, we don't do that. I, I, you certainly could. We've we've heard some stupid ideas in that room, and I've I've generated a lot of them myself. Yeah. So what? But but, but it, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it seems to me uh, that it's real important to to make a, a safe room to create a safe room where uh, because some of the, honestly uh, some of the stupidest ideas on the face of them have turned into some of the best episodes. Uh, so I try to say, at worst, I try to say, that's an interesting idea. And they know that's sometimes could be construed as, as code for stupid, but, but it, it's, it's gentler. What, give us an example of something that seems stupid on the face of it, but turned out to be really great. Is there an, we we had an episode. Um, I was very proud of this uh, scene. Um, uh, we had an episode where we had a character named Tortuga, 
Spanish for tortoise, and he uh, seems very tough when we meet him, played by Danny Trejo, very tough guy who was in the movie Heat, excellent actor. Uh, I never met him, unfortunately. I, this is the trouble with being in a writer's room 800 miles away. I never actually met him when he shot that episode, but he gets his off-camera in, in the first time you see him. Uh, he gets his head lopped off by the cartel, and they put it on top of a big desert tortoise as, as a message to the, the DEA, and it says Ola DEA on the back uh, on this tortoise. And So you see this, this head on a tortoise walking through the desert, and when we came up with that, I just said, you know, we should just go home for the day. This was a good day's work. <laughs> And then, uh, and then one of my writers, uh, George Mastris, excellent novelist, by the way, uh, his book, Fidali's Way, you've read, uh, George Mastris uh, said, you know what, then, then the head should blow up. And I said, Jesus, man, come on. <laughs> just, uh, come on, man, stop gilding the lily. You know, it's a, you got a head on a got tortoise. a turtle, a head, and now he wants yeah, to explode come on it. already. Yeah. And then, you know, we're like, you know what? That's a good way to button the scene. So as we say, button the scene, come up with a good tag at the end of the scene. And that's exactly what we did. And the guy gets his leg blown off. And it was very, very well executed by the director of that episode and the actors. Uh, so we did indeed end the scene with what I at first thought was a, if not a stupid idea, just overkill. But, you know, if you've seen the show, there's, it's, it's hard to... Everything's overkill on the damn show. So. <laughs> <clears throat> tortoise is going very slow. Yeah, we did, no tortoises were harmed in the filming of that. Yeah, scene, was it? Yeah, it was. Uh, his name was. Uh, what was the tortoise's name? Oh shoot, I remember. He had a like like. Uh, he was so, like a hundred and eighty years old or something. He probably was. Yeah. He'll outlive all of us. Yeah, <laughs> unless somebody blows him up. Yeah. It was, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I can't remember. The, it was like Otto or something like that. Anyway, he was a, he was a good guy. Well, you've said that maybe Walter, you know, I know you are asked a lot, where did the show come from? Where did the idea come from? And you say, you know, it's, it's hard to say where it came from, but you do remember when it came to you. Yeah. And it's a really interesting story. Would you tell us about sure. that? Sure. Yeah. I was talking to a buddy of mine named Tom Schnauss. I've known him since 1986. We, we met at NYU Film School. And uh, he uh, later became a writer on the X-Files with me. Uh, and in about 2003 or 2004, the X-Files had been over for about a year or more. And he and I were on the phone to each other bemoaning the fact that uh, we had lost uh, what, was, what had been a very nice job and lucrative. And uh, we were, both of us, uh, looking at uh, losing our Writers Guild insurance because we hadn't worked for a while. And because, uh, you know, the business is feast or famine. Uh, that's one of the downsides of it, but it makes it more interesting, potentially. But uh, he and I were uh, talking, and we're like, well, "What are we gonna, you know, what are we gonna do uh, now?" You know, and I said, "Maybe we could be uh, greeters at Walmart, because that's about all the only other thing we're good for." But uh, um, and he said, "You know, I was reading in the New York Times or someplace about this guy who put a meth lab. Some, you know, I, we always." Every time he tells a story, it's a difference. I, we remember it's in Rashomon. We remember slightly differently. But the, 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 the nut of the story was that uh, I, I, I believe he said something about, hey, why don't we put a meth lab in the back of an RV, you know, and, and we'll drive around and cook crystal meth and see, see the country, you know. And <laughs> you, you have to know him to understand that that was a joke. But, uh, but in this moment, it, it was a somewhat rare occurrence for me because the ideas are very usually very hard fought and, and slow in evolving. But uh, 
the idea of someone like us, meaning, you know, for all the big talk, we're, we're, he and I are both very, you know, boring and, and straight arrow and, and non-law breaking, but, but this idea of someone like us who would do such a thing intrigued me, and it was like, boom, uh, I suddenly had this character in mind. I did not have a name for him yet. He became Walter White, but this was one of those uh, eureka moments that you, you hope for as a writer that, that come, uh, unfortunately, a, a bit too rarely. But uh, it was, uh, that was the moment it all clicked. And then, of course, there was a lot of work after that, breaking the plot of that first So you hour. did that same process. You broke it down and then on cards, and, and you wrote it in about four to six weeks. I, I, I want to say it was about four to six weeks. Uh, about the, probably the writing was uh, the, the breaking down of the story, the note-taking portion, where you sit around and you don't look like you're working to everyone else in the world. You look like you're wasting time, but, but you're, in fact, working. That, that part might have gone on for another several weeks. Uh, and it's funny, it, it's, uh, they say, I had a great, uh, there's a director-producer in the X-Files who would always uh, give with the quote, uh, uh, the pain fades, but the glory remains. And, and, and to me that means, and it, it's, I don't remember the process of writing any of these episodes, except in vague intellectual terms. I, I just remember them, them being somewhat hard fought, but I, I wish I could remember, oh, and then I came up with this, and then I was thinking of that, and then this led to that, but it all just turns to mud in my memory, you know, which is why I always say I, I love having written more than I love writing, uh, yeah. past tense, <laughs> yeah. the, the satisfaction of, of It's like doing the laundry. You, you're glad you did it. But yeah, you, yeah, yes. yeah. I, yeah, if I did the laundry, I'd probably feel that way yeah. about the laundry, well, too. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, you know, I don't, you, you've said you were raised a Catholic. But yes. you consider yourself uh, not a Catholic any longer, or, or what, I'm not against it or anything. I just, I, yeah, I, 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 I was raised a Catholic. I'm probably a little more agnostic now. I but, but that goes to the point. My, my point about that is the the sense of spirituality or morality that the show really wrestles with. And it might may seem ironic at first to people that this really is a show about I think good and bad and mm-hmm. and uh, et cetera. Yeah. You have an interesting take on whether or not there is a heaven or if there is a hell. You. You, 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 you certainly hope there is a hell because... Well, my girlfriend Holly uh, says this all the time, and I quote it. Uh, she says, I don't know if there, for sure if there's a heaven, but there's, I can't live in a world where there's no, there's no hell after this. And she means what she's saying, essentially, is you know, when, you, when you see the Hitlers of the world and the Pol Pots and the, and the John Wayne Gacy's and Charles Manson's and you know, pick your poison, you know, when you, when you think of... The evildoers, the real stone evildoers of this world, and you and you think to yourself, you know, you know, is you know the Idi Amin's who die in the uh, wherever Saudi Arabia died in wealth, you know, of a heart attack and in his silk sheeted bed and you know in the middle of the night painlessly, you're like, there's got to be payback for this guy who lopped off his ex-wife's arms and legs and 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 rearranged them and stitched them on and showed them to his children. There's got to be some payback. For a guy who does such awful things, and I don't know if there is or not, but I, I just got to believe there yeah. is. Otherwise, I'd have a hard time getting up in the morning. So I think Holly feels that's why we've been together so long. I guess we. You're in agreement on that fact. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, you've, it's interesting. You did a great interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross in September, and you said, um, "I like to believe that there is more than just us in this universe, um, some ordering power. I can't prove it." The alternative is that we're all left with, each man and each woman, to our own philosophies and our own code of ethics. And I don't say that there would be 
in that kind of universe any kind of unifying reason to be good. And I, I think the show is so interesting because it's really, it really begs the question, why be good and how to be good? Which is why, I mean, maybe one of the subconscious reasons we're attracted to it, because I think it's a quest for us each day to get up and answer that question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I believe we should be good, if for, if for no other reason than a very logistical, uh, cut and dried reason of if, if it truly was each man or woman to his or her own, it'd be anarchy. It'd be worse than what we picture the Wild West being, or, or you know, the, the world of, of Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. You know, it'd be, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are, there are, uh, you know, good reasons to be good that, 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 uh, you know, don't fall within a realm of religion or philosophy. They're just fundamental reasons of the world works better if everyone looks out a little bit for one another. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to believe beyond that uh, that there are. You know, I don't know. I'd like to believe there's, I think we all should strive to be good. I'd like to believe there's some deeper reason why that's important to us and not just some weird genetic, you know, quirk of evolution that, that tells us to, to, you know, fear authority and, and whatever. You'd, you'd want it to be a more positive, I don't know. I'd like to, well, to stem for a more positive, uh, constructive yeah. reason. I mean, that's what's interesting about uh, Walters. We were talking earlier, I don't see many police people in this show, Breaking Bad, I never feel that they're gonna bust down his door and haul him off the jail. I mean, the threat of incarceration is really so far down on the, on the, on the kind of dangers he faces, which is basically the corruption of his own soul, mm -hmm. which yeah. seems to be the larger danger that he faces, the larger imprisonment. Yeah. Um, but having said all that, you've, I think you've also said that in some ways you identify with Walter. Um, and, and what we what we know about you just on the stage that that doesn't seem to fit. You do not. You seem a very. I, I I don't identify him with him now like I did in the early going. Um, uh, in the early, that's an interesting question because I, I when when I was writing the pilot, I I identified with him pretty readily. Uh, he was a man who who felt when he finds out when he in the first episode, if you've seen it, he he gets this lung cancer diagnosis and and it there's a slow burn reaction to it. But I think. What he's going through is is uh, anger. There's a lot of anger after the disbelief wears off, and, and it's the anger of, I did everything right, or I tried my best to. I tried to live the life that people expected me to live, and I tried to support my family to the best of my ability and do the right thing, and I got robbed. This is a ripoff. I think he, he feels that way in the mm -hmm. early going, uh, and I think we can all relate to that feeling on some level or another. We've all had, we've all had those moments. You know, it could be as simple as someone cutting in line in front of you. And I waited here and this guy's in front of me now and he's gonna get in. You know, we've all had those moments. I, I think as the show progresses and Walt's reasons for doing the, the bad things he's doing become less, and I think Walt still, even in season four, he, he still, if, if you were here right now, not the actor, but the character, he would say, I do everything, what are you talking about? I do everything I do for the good of my family. I'm selfless. But Walter White is, I think his superpower, as you were, if you will, as it were, his superpower is this unending ability to lie to himself, to rationalize his behavior, uh, and to lie to everyone else around him, but especially to himself. But I think as the series progresses, his reasons for doing the things that he does become more uh, self selfish. Uh, he, he, he gets a kick. He gets a feeling of power from a feeling of aliveness, which you, you see a little in the pilot, probably in the clip you're going to show. You see a little of that. 
but uh, it, it deepens and darkens as, as the seasons progress, and, and he becomes uh, less sympathizable. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, that, that's where the experiment of the show comes in. It's, we risk shaking loose our audience uh, episode by episode as Walt, in little baby steps, sometimes bigger steps, gets worse and worse, less and less sympathizable, less likable. We risk losing people, losing viewers, but uh, as scary as that is for us, uh, we, we are, my writers and I and the, the crew and the cast, we, we are, are energized by, by, the, by the adventure, the experiment. You're listening to the Traverse City National Writer Series with Vince Gilligan, creator of Breaking Bad. Talking with Vince Gilligan is Doug Stanton. This is IPR News Radio. In some ways, then, it's a critique of American society to really paint a broad brush. I mean, who, do, who, who, who in this audience doesn't know somebody who's in constant kind of self-delusionment about why it is they're really doing something? I mean, I think that's really the, the, the themes or the arcs of the show are about that. I mean, he could be selling, from my point of view, fake Rolexes or uh, counterfeit uh, handbags. I mean, the fact he's selling this drug, but yeah. he's really living this secret life yeah. out. And um, you know, uh, listen, we have. Uh, you want to uh, let's let's go to the writers' room just for a minute. Sure. Do you have that? Oh yeah, in your I pages? do. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, okay, so this is from the pilot. Episode one, season one. You wrote this in 2005. Right. And um, so, Mr. Gilligan, you've gone home and you've, you've written these pages. And now, do you do, ever do a read in the room? Uh, you know, uh, we, uh, I sometimes read aloud out in my office to, to see if, the, if I'm tripping, if my tongue is tripping over the dialogue or not. But uh, we try at the start of every season, we try to do a, a reading with the cast. Uh, but we don't typically do them for every episode. But, but sometimes, uh, like for instance, the pilot, the cast will get together in a, in a big room sitting around a bunch of tables, and uh, the executives will be there, and we'll put it on its feet, as it were, uh, and read it aloud. And, uh, so you want to kind of do it, that now? Y- yeah, so this is um, who you want to be. I'll be, uh, do you want me to, to, I can be Walt if you want. You, you, you want to be Jesse? You, you be Walt. Oh, I'd love to be Jesse. All yeah, right. just. Well, you. Yeah. <coughs> Jesse gets all the funny lines. Yeah, okay, let's go. Well, it's 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 your screenwriter. It's your it's your it's your writer series. So I guess you get the good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. yeah. I'm, this is my room. Okay, right. yeah. Okay, so you read that same scene heading. And, all right. Uh, Exterior parking lot afternoon. Close on a fat handful of cash. Jesse counts it, impressed. We're in a shopping center lot, mostly empty. In background is the credit union. Jesse and Walt sit in Jesse's Daytona. It's four grand. My guy wants forty-five hundred. You're a drug dealer. Negotiate. Jesse thinks about it, shoves the money in his pants. You're not how I remember you from class. I mean, like, not at all. Walt checks his watch. I gotta go. Wait, hold up. Tell me why you're doing this. Seriously. Why do you do it? Money, mainly. There you go. Nah, come on, man. Some straight like you, giant stick up his ass, all of a sudden at age, what, 60? He's just going to break bad? I'm 50. It's weird is all. It doesn't compute. If you're like crazy or something, if you've gone crazy or depressed, I'm just saying that's something I need to know about. That affects me. Walt stares at Jesse a long time, considers how to answer. I am awake. What? By the RV. We start tomorrow. (laughs) 
you, you like the you like the original guys better, right? No, you. I, I gotta I gotta vote for the original two guys, but. Yeah, well, no, you you did the you did the I am awake, and that's really why I wanted to read that. Well, number one, I thought. Uh, being a writer, it's so important to read aloud, and it's interesting to know that you don't necessarily, you hear it, but you may not speak it aloud. I, 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 I do. I, I try to do it when no one else is around because it, it looks, I feel like it, I feel self-conscious if, if I'm, but, but, but yeah, I, I actually, I, I, I'm actually pretty good at, at, at reading it in my mouth, but not speaking it. I can, I can, I can, it's like my, I can feel my tongue moving in my mouth, but I'm not actually projecting. But I do it with the dialogue because I, I don't want to give, I want to write good dialogue, but I don't want to give, and I don't want to give the actors tongue twisters. You know, I, I want the, the dialogue to be able to flow out of their mouths as easily as possible. Even though they're better at doing this stuff than I am, I figure if I can do it pretty readily, it'll really flow out of their mouths. So that's, it is helpful to actually, well, in scene, a sense, read things aloud. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, and it's, I mean, the voice of, these voices come through. It, it, uh, so well, and Walt's line, his epiphany in this pilot, which is, I am awake. Yeah. And we're going to see that clip. We're, we're going to drop the screen in about two minutes. But that had to be a, a great moment, a, a writing victory, yeah. uh, to come to that moment because he has somehow awakened. Yeah. Um, it was, that was a fun one to write. I remember thinking, you know, and, and sometimes you write a line and it comes from your subconscious and you say, wait a minute, that's what this is about. Right. And I think that was one of those moments. Yeah. He he. So we're, let's uh, get ready to drop the screen. But this is from the first season, the pilot. Um, we're going to see um, uh, Walt teaching chemistry, and really listen to what he says that he thinks chemistry is about. It's about the study of change, solution, dissolution, transformation, uh, which is really I think what the show is about. Um, and then we're going to go to a car wash scene, and then. Um, and then we get some great action scenes. We're going to end with the last scene from last season, the finale episode, episode 13, Face Off. Uh-huh. Everyone know that scene? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, not only is it just great visually, Vince has some interesting things to say about how you shot that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So let's, let's roll all this. It's about 11 minutes. We're just going to watch them all the way through, and then we'll raise the screen, and we'll sit back down and keep talking, and then go to questions. Chemicals. Chemicals. No. Chemistry is, well, technically, chemistry is the study of matter. But I prefer to see it as the study of change. Now, just just think about this. Electrons. They change their energy levels. Molecules. Molecules change their bonds. Elements, they combine and change into compounds. Well, that's that's all of life, right? I mean, it's just, it's the constant, it's the cycle, it's solution, dissolution, just over and over and over. It is growth, then decay, then transformation. It is fascinating, really. Why do you do it? 
Money? Mainly? There you go. Nah, come on. Man, some straight like you giant stick up his ass all of a sudden at age, what, 60, he's just gonna break bad? I'm 50. It's weird, is all, okay? It, it doesn't compute. Listen, if you've gone crazy or something, I mean, if you've, if you, if you've gone crazy or depressed, I'm, I'm just saying, that, that's something I need to know about, okay? I mean, that, that affects me. I am awake. <laughs> what? Buy the RV. We start tomorrow. How's it coming in there? Fine. Do you want me or your dad? Dad. So how are those feeling in the waist? Are they too tight? Because you don't want to get them if they're too tight. There you go. They're they're pretty short. Are you sure you don't want to get the like a different kind, like uh, you know, the skinny jeans? Because those are really supposed to be in style now. The skaters wear them. Do I look like a skater? All right. Mom, that my big boy pants. <laughs> Mama, could you zip up my big boy pants? <laughs> Seriously. Don't. Walt. <laughs> I have no idea. No, you know what? Don't even look at them. They're obviously very stupid. Yeah. I think that um, I think those jeans look really good on you. I think you should get them if you like them. Okay. You know what? Why don't you just hang out here for a second? I'll be right back. Oh, no. Hey, hey, Mommy, I think I pinched a loaf in my brand new big boy pants. <laughs> what are you doing? What's wrong, Chief? Having a little trouble walking? Get off me! Get off me! I'll mess you up, man. Well, you'll have one shot. You better make it good. What, are you waiting for your girlfriend? You better go. You better go. Take your shot. Take it! Come on. Come on. Come on, let's get out of here. Let's go. Psycho. I've said it before. If you are in danger, we go to the police. Oh, uh, no, I don't want to hear about the I police. I do not say that lightly. I know what it could do to this family, but if it's the only real choice we have, if it's either that or you getting shot when you open your I don't front want door, to hear about the you're police. not some hardened criminal, Walt. You are in over your head. No. That's what we tell them. That's the truth. That's no, not the truth. Of course it is. School teacher cancer, 
desperate for money. Okay, we're done here. Roped into working for, unable to even quit. You told me that yourself, Walt. Jesus, what was I thinking? Walt, please, let's both of us stop trying to justify this whole thing and admit you're in danger. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? Do you know how much I make a year? I mean, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know what would happen if I suddenly decided to stop going into work? A business big enough that it could be listed on the NASDAQ goes belly up. Disappears. It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Last chance to look at me, actor. made all that? Yeah. Well, with a lot of help. Yeah. With a whole, right. whole, whole lot of help. A whole lot of help. Starting with Mr. Brian Cranston, who's, uh, who plays Walter White, who's just phenomenal. I'm lucky what, to get to work with him. What's so amazing, I, I think probably you all felt the same way as watching him in the chemistry class and then that last really powerful scene in the episode Cornered uh, when he says, I am the danger. Yes. I'm the one who knocks. He's um, come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what's so fascinating is you, it, you, you, I guess you like him for different reasons, but you can't take your eyes off of him on the screen. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, talk about his journey then from that. I should button. say I was lucky to, I was very fortunate. People say to me sometimes, how did you know the guy, the dad, the goofy dad from Malcolm in the Middle would be so good in this part? And I, I, I would not have if I uh, had not been fortunate enough to work with Brian uh, 18 months before Malcolm in the Middle went on the air in an episode of The X-Files. Uh, uh, it was an episode uh, when we first moved production from Vancouver to Los Angeles, and we had this role as an episode I'd, I'd written, uh, and it was a tricky role to cast because it was a two-hander, essentially. It was Agent Mulder stuck in a car for pretty much the whole running time of the episode with a bad guy holding a gun to his head, making him drive. And it was called Drive, was the name of the episode. Uh, and it was tricky because we had a, a character who was a kind of a bastard, just a real bad guy, anti-Semite, just a creep. And yet at the end of the hour of television, spoiler alert, uh, he gets killed. And uh, when he does, you're supposed to sympathize. You're supposed to feel sympathy, sadness for this character. And we had a lot of actors come in and read, uh, a lot of good actors, but they, didn't, they weren't sympathizable at the end. They were either not strong enough to play the bad guy stuff, you know, not mean enough, or they weren't sympathizable. They were plenty mean, but not sympathizable. And we were biting our fingernails down to the nub, trying to find this part, thinking we weren't going to do it, pull it off in time. And then Brian Cranston walked in the room. I'd never, I thought I'd never laid eyes on him. Turns out I had. He's such a chameleon as an actor that uh, I'd seen him in 
Saving Private Ryan. He plays the one-armed officer who sends uh, Tom Hanks and his men on their suicide mission. I'd seen him playing Buzz Aldrin and From the Earth to the Moon, and he was the, the goofy dentist on, on Seinfeld uh, who converts to Judaism for the jokes. You know, he played all these different characters, and I had not realized he was the same guy, and he did a phenomenal job in this X-File episode. I lost touch with him after that, but about a year and a half later, he's doing Malcolm in the Middle, and I, I didn't even recognize him at first, and finally I said, oh my God, that's the guy that was in the X-File episode. I didn't know he could be funny. And so I came at it from a guy who's intensely dramatic and scary and, and mean, and uh, this is a guy, he's, uh, he can do anything, mm-hmm. this actor. He can, he could, he can do anything, and, and, and it all... Uh, the casting all, all, all was centered around uh, getting Mr. Cranston in the role, us being fortunate enough to get him. And, and uh, yeah, he makes quite a journey, as you can see, uh, over, over the course of these four years we've, we've shown so far. Uh, he looks different. He's, he's, you know, he started off with a, with a mustache that he designed himself. He said, I want a mustache that looks like a dead caterpillar on, on, on my upper lip. So he had the... Um, He's an amazing guy. He came in on that pilot. You saw clips from the pilot. He came in and he said, he said a month or two before, and he said, I think I should be around 168 for this pilot. And I said, 168, is that technical talk? And he said, no, I mean I should weigh 168 pounds. I was like, all right. He says, no, because that's just slightly doughy, slightly gone to seed on my frame. That's or it was 178, whatever it was. He nailed it. Whatever the number was, he nailed it. He came in exactly at that weight. I mean, that's his instrument, you know. He, he is so finely attuned to it and so able to command it that he came in at exactly within a pound, came in at the weight he uh, said he would, because he, he said, I want to look kind of doughy, I kind of want to look kind of soft and, and you know, milk toasty, and I want this dead caterpillar on my upper lip. And, and he's very ruddy. In real life, if you met Brian, you'd, you'd recognize him, but you wouldn't recognize him, you know what I mean? He's not... Walter White, he's a different guy, and he's very much alive and sort of ruddy Scottish complexion, but he, he takes, especially in the early going, he would take, we would take that away with the, uh, the makeup, and, but he, he just knew just how Walt should feel, how he should look, what weight he should arrive at, you know, and, and, and we adjust that accordingly with every new season. Uh, let's see, would you like to go to questions now? And uh, sure. I'm sure the audience wants to know uh, lots of things about you and from you. Sure. We bring up the lights. Um, wow, there's people out there. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't see any of you until just now. Hi, I'm Mary Grover from here in, in Traverse City. And just tell me, uh, how did you learn to make crystal meth? Uh, crystal, uh, unfortunately, uh, crystal meth is uh, when, when I when I first thought of the idea of, of of Breaking Bad. I think I think what interested me uh, was the idea of a of a of a previously very good man doing one of the worst things he could possibly think of doing that would be financially beneficial. Uh, and and crystal meth is is a pretty terrible drug, and unfortunately, it's very easy to find. Uh, formulae for it on the internet. I, when it came uh, the point in the script where I had to describe uh, some of the process, processes that he was going through to, to, to make this stuff, I sat down and I googled crystal meth and, and within 90 seconds you can find a lot of different uh, you know, in, uh, methods of making it. So it's, it's, all, it's all out there. You know, it's, it's this amazing 
post-internet world we live in, it's, 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 you know, I see it as mostly good. I mean, it's, you know, it's just amazing that information uh, at our fingertips the way it is now, it's, it's pretty impressive. But you, you said earlier, you know, in 62, it was legal. There was a, an inhaler that was called... Uh, yeah, there's some called a vapor. Some of the research along the, the way, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. Uh, there was something called a Velo inhaler you could buy in the early 60s. I think up until the early or mid-60s, methamphetamine was, was legal. Uh, and you could buy these inhalers over the counter to give you kind of a quick boost or whatnot. And, um, of course, uh, well, there's, there's methamphetamine, there's... there's uh, Dextroamphetamine. I, I am no chemist, but there's there's different forms of amphetamine where the the molecules or the chirality mm -hmm. of the molecules is opposite one another, and they have different. And anyone who's a chemist is tell me I'm full of crap. I'm probably, but but there's different forms. You just of play it. one on TV. I play it, uh, it, well, that's, you know, being a writer is about being a professional liar. You got to make it sound good, whether you know what you're talking about or not. But it, all the different forms of amphetamine, so many of them date back to. Um, so many of them used in warfare. Uh, Hitler got a shot, and apparently got a shot in the butt every day of the last year or two of his life. It was like vitamin B complex and methamphetamine. You know, it was, uh, had to keep he had to keep the right going or whatever. So it's it's been mm. around for a while. I think since the 1890s or something, methamphetamine's been around. Yes. Could you talk about whether or not you're purposefully having other characters break particular directions, or if they just kind of go with the flow of the story? I, uh, I, I always think of, first and foremost, I think of Walter White and how he affects the other characters in the show. And, I, and my writers and I think of him, you know, the show is about a guy, ostensibly about a guy with cancer and what he does once he has this knowledge of his, of his cancer. But we think of Walt himself being a cancer on the, on the other uh, characters around him. And uh, these other characters, uh, a lot of them, are put into boxes by, by Walt's behavior, and, and, and they either, sometimes they rise to the occasion, sometimes they, they, they become uh, a little less moral, or, or you know, they, they, they take, they cut some corners here and there, and I think so much of it comes back to Walt's effect on the people around him. Well, Vince, <laughs> this has meant the world to us, and thank, thank you, you for being here. Thank you. All of us, if you go home and go to the AMC website and, and uh, say, um, five more years, five more years, <laughs> I know you've got to leave. You're going to go back and do uh, season five. We'll be tuned in, and please come back to Traverse City. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, right. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you.